Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we discuss the legacy of Chicago policing, the biggest black American parade in the USA, and how to turn fridges into race cars. All this plus size matters, the Trump Diaries, and Are We Cool Yet? only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for August 9th, 2019. Mario Smith chatted with WTTW's Mary Datcher about the Bud Billiken Parade, taking place this weekend in Chicago. The oldest black American parade in the country, the Bud Billiken Parade, has been a hallmark of Bronzeville life for 90 years. News from the service entrance with Mario Smith is every Thursday at 2. Joining me on the phone right now is a legend. A legend. When I tell you this woman is a legend, I'm not playing with you. That's my hand hitting the counter because she's a legend. If you ever hear this story about the Wu-Tang Clan coming to Chicago and coming to Lit-X, this is the woman that brought the Wu-Tang Clan to Lit-X. It's Mary Datcher. She joins us on the phone right now. What's up, Mary? Hey, Mario. How are you? Man, I'm mad, but I'm all right. <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> ah, I did something <laughs> boneheaded. Really. St- oh. nah. mm-hmm. But anyway, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> um. You have, uh, I guess you've made headlines of your own in the last uh, <laughs> few days um, in regard to the Bud Billiken Day Parade. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, what what caught your attention about the, 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 the uh, after, after party, after parade event that's usually held in Washington Park that the police are very reluctant to hold. Um, can you give me like an update as what to, what has hap- what happened and what has happened since, and and just to fill people in on why you got involved? Well, you know, basically just to kind of clear you know clear up, um, you know, I work with the Robert uh, S. Abbott Foundation, Robert Sinstack Abbott Foundation, who was the founder and publisher of the Chicago Defender. He founded the Chicago Defender in 1905. And as a former managing editor, I've actually been um, brought on to help build this publication called Bronzeville Life that's being headed up by his uh, great-grand-niece, my Edie Sinstack Rice. And she is, you know, fourth-generation Sinstack who has taken over the charities who owns the right to produce and all of that that encompasses Bud Billiken because people don't know in 2002 the family sold the publication to a Detroit-based company that who currently owns it but they have nothing to do with the paper they still have the uh, the ownership of the Bud Billiken parade so in that um, course my involvement is not only overseeing their new publication but also overseeing the event management and production for the event that takes place in Washington Park at the end of the parade. Of the parade. It's always been like that since 1929. Right. Um, it, it, you know, the difference that has brought it more uh, to the forefront is that I named it. It takes a village. Mm-hmm. So instead of it being, oh, but... You just go to the end of the park, and they got a bunch of tents and giving away some backpacks. I said, look, the neighborhood's changing. The way that we produce this event has to change because the previous team were from another area, a more old school, more traditional. And so since she's taking it over, we got to think out the box and be very diligent in what we do when it comes to uh, maintaining and preserving the legacy 
And so It Takes a Village really speaks to why we're doing this. It's all about youth and excellence and the reasons why Mr. Abbott started this parade to showcase his news boys, his newspaper boys, and the things in the neighborhood to keep young people in school and to embrace education, especially as a, an alumni of Hampton University, he really embraced that a great deal and was the benefactor for so many young people going off to college. So all it takes the villages is encompassing what we believe in making sure that your uncles and your aunties and your neighbors and, you know, the the seniors up and down uh, King Drive and around the neighborhood is embracing the unified front of it's not just you and you're not just alone. It's amazing that even with that name of rebranding the, par- the park portion of the parade, it has brought out so much um, pushback from the Chicago Police Department. We were very surprised because they just said, oh, that's a whole different event. That's totally separate from the bud. No, it's not. We're just naming it so that people know we're there and what it means to be there. And so, you know, since that, Mario, we've had citywide meetings. People don't get it's so many moving parts to producing the bud billiken. And part of that is making sure that we get a lot of our key agency heads involved um, with, you know, from the CTA to CPS to CHA to uh, OMC to the uh, the Alderman Office, Alderman King, Alderman Dow, right. uh, you name it, police department, the fire department, the park district, Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, there are so many moving parts that we have to make sure everybody understands what their role and what they have to do and what we have to do to make their jobs easier. And so the police has been one of those uh, agencies that at one point used to be one of our most, uh, uh, one of our best supporters from even back in the Harold Washington and Old Man Daily days. They, they weren't giving us this kind of pushback. And as we speed up to 2019, we're, we're, we're always being pressured, hey, instead of doing 10 a.m., let's do it at 9 a.m. Well, we did that three years ago at 9 a.m., and it was a disaster. They said, hey, we don't like so many entries. Cut it down. And while you're cutting it down, don't make sure that you don't have as many entries per group. So what happens, uh, a celebrated drill team like South Shore drill team who has close to 200 young members is cut down to half of that. And you see the uproar in the community because these organizations, these kids, they make sure their families are out there cheering them on. And then, oh, well, we don't like the fact that you all have separated the viewing stands because we're one of the the only parades that have two viewing stations where the kids come and they dance and they do their thing in front of the the media viewing stand with ABC. And right. then the, the, the one at the end at 51st and Ellsworth off of King is the final showcase where they have to show their dance between 30 seconds and a minute where there's judges that judge them on their pageantry and technique and, and their whole look. See, Bud is about a competition wrapped up into the community 
And so we're judging who's the best band, who's the best drill team, who's the best dance crew. All of that is celebrating the talent of these young brothers and sisters throughout their entire school year. They prepare for this. So at the end of the park, we're celebrating it with all of our corporate partners and community organizations and outreach by giving them resources, whether it's in the workforce development, whether it's giving away backpacks, haircuts, hair braid styles, making sure that they, you know, they have fun in the bouncy village, all the things that, you know, we see in other neighborhoods do. And we wanted to do a music stage, celebrate some of our young people performing, make sure it's clean. Right. No. Problem was, oh, no, we don't want no amplified sound. We don't want no music. That draws a different kind of element into the, the park. Oh, and by the way, you ought to have music last year. We shut that down because it was more peaceful. We don't want that. Well, we went ahead and proposed it. Hey, this is our lineup. They're clean. There's no issues with them. They're all celebrated. They're all vetted through the Department of Cultural Affairs when they did the taste. Can we do it? 12 to 4. No. So we've been dealing with this pushback, and finally we conceded to cut off the music at 2.55, give us at least close to three hours. They said, okay, no problem, we'll do that. But it had to get to a sit-down to even make that happen. And along the way, I'm going to say this, because I don't want people to think that there was no assistance. Alderman Pat Dow's office in the third ward and Alderman Sophia King's office in the from the fourth ward, has been nothing short of just going to bat for us. I mean, seriously going to bat and realizing how important this parade is to the community and to their constituents. And so special shout-out to both of them and their staffs for, you know, sticking with us, you know, working with us through some of the kinks because it's a different transitional team that's taken over the bud. But at the same time, you know, people go, well, what about Mayor Lightfoot? What are some people in Mayor's Lightfoot office been working, too, on our behalf and making sure that they under- let the police office, the police department know this is just not going to be acceptable to keep on pushing back with the organizers of a parade that is 90 years old. The Klonskis chatted with Simon Balto, the author of Occupied Territory, Policing Black Chicago from Red Summer to Black Power. Balto discussed the legacy of the CPD's scorched earth strategy in the 1960s and how even the events of 100 years ago still resonate today. Hitting Left airs every Friday at 11 a.m. For my money, I, I don't think Chicago has a more difficult problem to solve than how to bring affordable housing into the city in mass numbers. And there's a whole debate about whether you need to build it from scratch or whether you need to rehab what's out there. And obviously the answer is both. But I like this thing that Lightfoot... But it's also a matter of intent, Ken. Oh, yeah. absolutely. If there's intent, then you can find, there's ways to do right. it. Yeah. Well, that. however, if you even... You know, this is one of the questions I used to ask on the show all the time. It's like, even if you had the intent and you bought up 20 empty lots, you know, on 63rd Street. Could you build, could, given the technology and the state of the art of building, could you build units 
that would that could rent or sell for well, an affordable well, you know, price, we, and that's a that's a well, tough. Well, we've question. had this fight in, yeah. up in our up our neck of the woods, in Logan Square, around uh, this project that uh, on a on a vacant lot of, that the yeah. city owns. Yes, it's a parking lot called Emmett Street. It's taken units, right? It's a hundred units of mm-hmm. affordable of affordable housing. Yep. Uh, um, that, but it's been in the planning stages for five years, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's not. It hasn't gone through the whole process yet. Yeah. This is for a hundred units yeah. in a neighborhood in a in a ward mm-hmm. that's lost twenty thousand Latino residents in the yeah. last ten years. Yeah. So, uh, to me, I, and I, I attended all those meetings up in Logan Square. We voted in favor. Da, da, da. I mean, surprisingly, here in this in this, I saw uh, you holding up your green card in a neighbor in a neighborhood that's described, you know, is being described as a hipster gentrifying mm-hmm. neighborhood. Overwhelmingly, uh, the neighborhood supported the mm-hmm. the this, but it's for a. It's four hundred units. units. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't. Even but it shows. For, don't you think it shows, Fred, that uh, it can be done? I mean, well, it can be done, but it can't be done here. It can't be done in this by the city. The mm-hmm. city cannot afford to build the tens of thousands of units that are required right. for the. And so it's got to be. It really has to be the federal, the feds to do it. Uh, that funded and that you know that pay for it. And there, uh, where yeah. where is that going to where is well, that going to happen? But this is one of the things I, I came here today to ask you guys about because it's exactly on this point. Lori Lightfoot is talking about loosening the building code, essentially, loosening city, loosening city regulations to allow basement apartments, coach houses, granny flats, all that kind of stuff, which would then be rented presumably at a low rent, uh, you know, a, a lower rent. Is that, is that a part of the solution? Does it, would that work in Logan Square? Well, I, I think it's part, I think only if it's part of a, a part of a solution, really a menu of, of things like like rent control, mm-hmm. like rent stabilization, like building uh, low co- low cost housing by the feds. I think that like all these kind of problems, uh, she can do what she can do, but mm-hmm. then there's limits of of what of what the mayor or even the city can do on its own. I think making units like for example, I'll just give you an example. In on our block, uh, across the street, there are, there are two. Beautiful Logan Square uh, gravestones that, when I moved into that block 30 years ago, had a had a, a Latino family in each one of those units. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, an intact family, two parents, yeah, yeah. couple kids, one car. Now those units are all being rented to uh, like uh, hipster bros with uh, so it's four guys and or four four young women in an apartment each with their own car no kids they don't have so bikes they, they, have own, bike. uh, they have bikes and cars <laughs> oh, I see. Uh, but the whole and there's a couple now of airbnbs on the block so yeah. the whole nature of the community and the kind of so that that apartment that used to be an affordable apartment for a single family yeah. now can only be afford, can only be paid for if four four guys live in it, and then other of those kind of Logan Square classic Chicago apartments that used to have a single family are being torn down yes. and replaced by uh, six condominiums yeah. at prices that nobody right. who presently lives right. there uh, can afford. And course, so, so I don't have a problem with with uh, Mayor Lightfoot's proposal about about loosening those kind of rules if it's part of a a combination of other things too. But of course, and I live. Uh, I'm sorry. I, li- I live uh, four or five stops further down the blue line than you do, up in uh, Jefferson Park, and and there the situation is completely different because efforts to build affordable housing there were beaten back by the community. That's why so, I say it's a matter of will. Uh, yeah. There are certainly ways to do it if if the will is there, and I think uh, you know uh, it's a question of uh, whether we, as a society, really want poor folks 
living in yeah. the city, uh, yeah. you know, uh, and whether it's economically uh, feasible or not. Well, and I think that the you know <clears throat> the, this point about federal investment being the solution is is an important one because at the end of the day, you know, there's only so many things that the city can even do. Um, because of the sheer scale of what needs to happen, I mean, and one of the, I mean, one of the things that's it's not funny about Trump's attacks on Baltimore is that in the aftermath of the Freddie Gray uprising in Baltimore, he was tweeting up a storm about how Obama could fix Baltimore if he wanted to. Um, but now that he's the one in, in the White House, he's basically calling on Elijah yeah, yeah. Cummings to do it. Um, but the reality is, is that you know, I mean, and, and this is, I mean, sort of something we've been circling around. Uh, ever since the show started. But, you know, I mean, going back to the Reagan era, I mean, just the decimation of federal funding to the city is really what has driven a lot of the processes that we're dealing with. Block right grants. We're talking, yeah. to, we're talking to Simon uh, Balto, uh, the author of Occupied uh, Territory. Uh, and uh, to Ken Davis, who I just want to point out, though you may be retired, Every one of my appearances on your show is available on YouTube, and people can go back. And <laughs> Our appearances. Chicago Newsroom. Well, I, you were on once. I was on a numerous times. Yeah, but that was that was the show that, uh, well, you could say that was the show that forced Ken to, uh, <laughs> to, to retire. I, in the light of this competition, I'm going to have to run away. <laughs> uh, Simon. Yeah. Uh, t- tell us something about, uh, about Occupied Territory. I mean, the name itself. Sure. Uh, implies that uh, a kind of colonial, a kind of colonial uh, relationship mm-hmm. between the black community and the uh, and the United States as yeah. a whole. You know, is that what you were thinking of when you when you uh, named it the title? Well, I stole. So this is a book about policing in Black Chicago. From it really starts with the 1919 Red Summer um, and goes through the early 70s to the aftermath of the. Uh, the police assassination of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. Say something about uh, Red Summer. Some of our listeners may not know what. Sure. You're so, to. so a hundred years ago, actually, this I think actually today was the day that Chicago's Red Summer kind of formally came to a close. But basically, during 1919, there were. Uh, what are called race riots, um, which essentially began with white racial terrorism uh, here in Chicago that took place on the south side where um, essentially conflict between white and black folks um, really over neighborhood segregation erupted and uh, 38 people were killed. Um, so it, it uh, began on the 27th of July 1919 and, and um, here in Chicago and, and ran uh, about six days. So um, – so the book starts there and, and it goes through the 70s. Um, and in terms of the title, I mean, I stole the title pretty shamelessly from James Baldwin. Um, right. So Baldwin in the middle of the 1960s talks about he, he writes an essay published in The Nation called The Report from Occupied Territory um, that is essentially about the crisis of policing that black people in Harlem are, are dealing with, um, basically about police harassment, police violence and so on and so forth. And. So I, uh, I I stole Baldwin. I mean, if you're going to crib from somebody, you might as well crib from the best. <laughs> can't beat that. Yeah, so I yeah. Beat. So so the book is basically a, a look at how um, how the crisis of policing that we face right now in 2019, um, kind of its origins, um, which a lot of people think began with the war on drugs, but is actually much much deeper than that. Um, and I was actually I was thinking about this um, before the break, Fred, when you were talking about um, you know this this dueling sister these dueling stories right now about how Kim Fox has successfully dropped the incarceration rate by the uh, by the county while at the same time the crime rate is is falling 
Um, and two thoughts about that. One, because I consider it a matter of professional obligation and because I'm a little bit of a masochist, I follow the Fraternal Order of Police's social media mm -hmm. presence. Mm -hmm. And if you want to see, I mean, so when you when somebody made the Jesse Smollett uh, reference earlier, the two things that they seem to be obsessed with are Jesse Smollett and uh, the and Kim Fox. Um, despise them both and despise Kim Fox really, really vigorously. Um, but uh, the and, and badge you know, of honor, in my opinion. Right. Yeah, no, of course. Um, but so but the other thing that I, I think is just worth pointing out is that it's always been a logical fallacy to think that incarceration has any sort of positive impact on crime rates. Um, that this is an argument that law and order folks have been trying to make forever, but it's just not empirically true. That there's, you know, it's not to say that when incarceration, incarceration rates go down, there's evidence that says that that somehow makes crime rates fall, but it is to say that uh, there's no evidence at all that uh, driving up incarceration rates has any positive impact on I think crime. That, Ken, I think that was, Ray Ken, that was kind of what you were saying, right. that they're like two separate buckets, yeah. I think was the way you yeah. talked about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Simon, you, you, uh, you begin your your book, in, at least in the introduction, with a quote from uh, Howard Saffold, mm -hmm. who uh, we know very well here in Chicago, uh, who was uh, part of the Black Patrolmen's Association uh, during the Harold Washington uh, days. Mm -hmm. uh, he says that Chicago is, uh, let me see, he says Chicago's black neighborhoods are the most over-patrolled and under-protected in the city. Mm -hmm. uh, Go off on that a little bit. What is, what is that? Why? Uh, yeah. Why did you select that quote? Well, I mean, there's, you know, I mean, I th you know, I mean, the, the sort of nagging question here is, you know, when we're looking at uh, Chicago's black neighborhoods, whether in the early 1970s, which is when Saffold gave that testimony, or you know, now, if you look at the neighborhoods where hyper aggressive and repressive policing takes place. Um, if you were to take a map of, of where that hyper aggressive policing takes place and lay it over a map of the neighborhoods where people are most at risk of violent crime, they, I mean, it's, it's a total overlap. Um, and so, you know, when Saffold is saying people are over-patrolled, over basically over-policed, meaning they're subject to violent policing, police harassment, stop and frisk, so on and so forth, well, at the same time, they're not actually getting any sort of public safety out of that anyway. Um, so he's, he's putting forth that argument in the 1970s. It's the same sort of argument that you can make today, which raises the fundamental question of what's the point? You know, so what's the point of all of this hyper vigilant policing if it's not actually doing anything to ensure public safety? Well, p police police come in after the fact. Mm -hmm. Police come into the picture after mm -hmm. the crime or wh whatever, mm -hmm. and uh, I, uh, I don't, I can't see how uh, what the even the mayor, even Mayor Lightfoot, who I'm a big fan of, as you might know. Mm -hmm. Uh, when she, back on Memorial Day, she talked about flooding the zone right. with police. Right. Uh, I don't see how that uh, does anything to uh, prevent violence. The answer is it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, again, this is a it, it's a it's a it's a fallacy that seems logical on its face, but doesn't act, but is not actually based in any sort of fact. Yeah. So so. Uh, but it's also politics, right? I mean, of course, if yeah. you're the mayor, you've got you you have to assuage those people who feel that you have to do that, because if she if she had not done that, if she had mm -hmm. if she had said, no, we're not going to flood the zone. That's silly. That's that's anarchy. You know, that that's that's uh, that's ridiculous policy. Trump would have tweeted that. Of course. Yeah. And it would have it would have it would have set us off for a month. Well, right? uh, of course, uh, Mayor Lightfoot also said much more than that. Yeah. Uh, she said much more than flooding the zone, which I really responded to negatively. Mm -hmm. But uh, she also talked about needing to 
change the conditions of life yeah. in the community, you know, uh, in terms of poverty, in terms of jobs, yeah. uh, education and things like that. I was at I was at an event on Monday with her. Um, I know you were yeah. over at Dunbar High uh, commemorating the 1919 um, race riots. And she she was really, really um, astute. And I was I mean, I was really impressed by her comments about, you know, I mean, within a very brief period of time, taught, you know, drawing upon this history from 1919, but also bringing it forward, you know, that story of injustice and talking about injustice right now and talking about how when we're dealing with, you know, uh, intracommunal violence, um, all sorts of different problems about how these are all things that are rooted in inequality, um, which is something that I'm not especially used to Chicago's mayors saying. (laughs) Yeah, I Yeah, 32nd is just brutal. How can they leave the street like this in front of a school? The city debt works. I'm pretty sure half the street has fallen into the Coporo's basement at this point. Mother I just bought that tire. Wow, that hole's huge. What the hell was that? Katie ran over a pothole. It's fine. Are you sure? I'd probably shoot that car and put it out of his misery. Right. No, it's not a Yugo. Hey. Do you guys hear that? Uh, it sounds like it's coming from under your tire. Did you guys hit someone? Quick, we better torch the car now before We're the cops We're not burning get anything. Jesus. Help me push the car back. Kyle? Uh, why is he wearing a uniform? Why is someone under the street in the first place? How is that even possible? Oh, hey, guys. Oh, those fallen street racks really hurt my shemp area. Oh. Uh, Jess, what are you guys doing down there? Uh, Kyle's showing me around the underside. There's tunnels running all through Bridgeport. Come on down. Uh, I'm not so good with confined spaces. Ah, yes, your deadly fun allergy. Come on, guys, leave old man Trekker up there. The door's right in the back of the Copro. Whoa, it's huge down here and super creepy. I don't get it. How is there all this room underneath the streets? Say, Jess, why don't you give them a history lesson? Okay, so all the streets in Bridgeport were raised in the 1850s by 14 feet due to flooding. That left all these tunnels. They go all the way up to uptown. Yeah, that El Cazon guy used to use them for the bubbles right under the cops' noses. But Kyle, why are you wearing a uniform? Well, Professor Shannington, I'm a dutifully monetized and bonded member of Tristero, the Undertown Postal Society. And these tunnels is how we deliver the messages from the world beyond. You're an underground mailman? You're the least reliable person I know. I am deeply recognizated in that remark, Shannon. I've been delivering the undertown mail since the 1950s, I'll have you know. While that almost certainly can't be true, Shanna, the most important information is that there's a dead letter office down here. Unclaimed goods. Okay. Brought my knife, ready for inspection. Hey, I can't stand around here all day jibber-jabbering. The man leads delivering. So if you guys want to come along, I only got about a dozen more stops. Whoa, that's a pretty sweet mail cart you have there. Yeah, we put a lot of tires from Bridgeport on these old rail carts. Now, you got to stick close, because it ain't all fun and games down here. What's uh, with the musical cues, Kyle? That's a signal to level up, Jess. You're all gonna need infinite hit points for this job. Please turn off the boombox. Ah, you are not as fun as you claim. All right, kids, we gotta stop by Cheddar's house. He's the guy who gets that giant stack of magazines right there. Gigantic asses? Beautiful burrows? 
Look at the hooves on Donkey Miss April. Yeah, he handles all the beasts of burden. You need them down here. There you go. And the next stop is the gas plant, where we turn all your waste into the beautiful clean fuel that powers under town. Gross. It smells like a sewer. It is a sewer. Waste snot wants snot. That's what we say. Oh, what's the spur coming up? Just grab the lever. What lever? The one on your left. The other left. Oh, no, this is terrible. We're still on the rails. It can't be that bad. No, you don't understand. We're headed into Underport's Bridge. Kyle, you just lost boombox privileges for a week. Submit. 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 Is that a squid on the back of their head? Quick, Jess. Grab me my Wacken shovel. They've been taken over by the flying Cavalon. That's a frying pan, you idiot. Wacken good, Jess. No mercy. There's an ink sack? It's everywhere? Get it in your mouth. Thanks will burrow through your stomach. I'm whacking. I'm whacking. They just keep coming. You will bow before Cyoctorax. Leech of the bio. We're going over the falls in the Palmasano. Hang on, guys. Oh my god, that's cold. Where the heck are we? And why do I want sushi? Oh, thank heavens you made it. Physically, perhaps. I, I think I lost three or four sanity points. That's nothing but the life of an undertown mailman, Jess. What do you say we get this cart back up on the rails and I'll give you rides back to the Copro? No! Oh, okay, but you don't have to be rude about it. This week on The Trump Diaries, two mass killings shock the nation, the El Paso, Texas shooter quotes Trump in a racist manifesto, China begins manipulating its currency as the trade wars enter a dangerous new phase, calls for impeachment grow, and Trump tries to blame the media and video games for the violence. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 924, August 1st. Trump surprisingly announced he will impose a new 10% tariff on an additional $300 billion worth of Chinese imports, effectively taxing any product that Americans could buy from China. This after China failed to begin buying more American agricultural products as they had promised. The move came after trade talks in Shanghai stalled. Stocks plummeted on that news. In addition, Trump's former chief economic advisor said the trade war with China is backfiring. Trump told his newly appointed Secretary of Defense to re-examine the military's $10 billion cloud computing contract because of concerns it would be awarded to Amazon. Despite a court ruling brought by Oracle that the competition was fair, Trump asked officials to review the process, claiming that companies bidding against Amazon made, quote, tremendous complaints. Trump has made a number of false attacks against Amazon and the Washington Post because they're both owned by Jeff Bezos. Trump also suddenly ordered the military to punish the prosecutors who tried the case of a Navy SEAL who was charged and then acquitted of war crimes in the death of a captured ISIS fighter in Iraq. Trump complained the prosecutors who tried the case, quote, were ridiculously given a Navy Achievement Medal and demanded that the military immediately withdraw and rescind the awards. And the inspector general declined to investigate how the White House handled the security clearances for Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump, and several other officials. Four top Senate Democrats had asked the inspector general to investigate after reports that Kushner and Ivanka specifically were red flagged as unable to be cleared, but got clearances anyway. Day 925, August 2nd. Trump abruptly withdrew the nomination of John Ratcliffe as the director of national intelligence. Trump claimed that Ratcliffe, quote, is being treated very unfairly by the lamestream media and would not, quote, suffer months of slander and libel. In fact, Ratcliffe's nomination had received a partisan pushback after it became apparent he was grossly unqualified and had exaggerated his resume. Trump had nominated Ratcliffe on a whim after being impressed 
with his questioning of Robert Mueller at a House hearing. In a related story, Trump also blocked the nation's number two intelligence official from taking over as acting director of national intelligence. A federal statute requires that if the director of national intelligence becomes vacant, the deputy director, who is currently Sue Gordon, will serve as the acting director. Trump apparently wants to choose someone more partisan. The state of New York subpoenaed the Trump Organization for documents related to its role in hush money payments made to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. Manhattan District Attorney separately subpoenaed American Media Incorporated, which publishes the National Enquirer. New York believes that the organization falsified business records and concealed payments, which is a state crime. And Trump told reporters he didn't believe that Russia is already interfering in the 2020 presidential election. Quote, you don't really believe this. Do you believe this? said Trump when asked about testimony from both Robert Mueller and current FBI Director Christopher Wray. When asked if he raised the issue of ongoing Russian political interference during a call with Vladimir Putin this week, Trump replied, quote, we didn't talk about that. Day 926, August 3rd. July was officially recorded as the hottest month ever recorded since record keeping began. The past five years have been the hottest on record. The 10 hottest years have all occurred in the past two decades, and this year is on track to be in the top five hottest ever. Trump, meanwhile, has called global warming a Chinese hoax and has halted every American effort to combat climate change. Trump and the Republican National Committee filed a pair of lawsuits challenging a new law in California requiring presidential candidates to release five years of tax returns. The suit calls the law a, quote, naked political attack against the sitting president of the United States. Trump's lawyer argued the new law adds, quote, an unconstitutional qualification to the set of qualifications for the presidency as defined in the Constitution. California Governor Gavin Newsom responded that Trump could gain immediate relief by just releasing his tax returns. Trump has long claimed falsely that his returns are under audit. The Trump superfan Cesar Sayoc, who sent homemade pipe bonds to Obama, Hillary Clinton, and other Democrats, was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Defense attorneys said Sayoc was allegedly suffering from an untreated mental illness, and that he'd become increasingly obsessive, isolated, and paranoid. Day 927, August 4th. 32 are dead in two mass shootings that have stunned the United States. The first hit El Paso, Texas, and is being investigated as a hate crime. The second hit hours later in Dayton, Ohio, where the shooter also killed his own sister. In Texas, a shooter opened fire in a Walmart after posting a racist tract on social media. The gunman, identified as Patrick Crucius, a white male, will be prosecuted as a hate crime. He is said to have posted a tract echoing the language and views of Trump. The FBI calls it a domestic terror attack. Crucius published a four-page manifesto on the online message board 8chan about 20 minutes before the attack, saying he wanted to stop the, quote, Hispanic invasion of Texas. Much of the manifesto contained the language of Trump, specifically stating that this attack is a response to an invasion. Other passages mirror Trump's rhetoric describing undocumented immigrants as thugs and animals and decrying Latino immigration as an invasion of our country in general. In Dayton, the shooter was identified as Connor Betts. He was killed within a half second of opening fire on a crowd. Investigators had not yet determined whether the gunman had specifically targeted his sister or anyone else in the crowd. Most of the people who were killed were black. In a related story, the online message board 8chan, now linked to three mass shootings, will be terminated. Cloudflare Hosting announced it was pulling the plug just hours after the site's own founder called for its end. Trump then claimed that Google had committed very illegal acts to subvert his 2016 presidential campaign, and that he'll be watching the company very closely out of the 2020 election. Trump's tweets came after a former Google engineer appeared on Fox and Friends. A Google spokesman described the employee who was terminated as a disgruntled former employee. 
Day 928, August 5th. In an early morning tweet, Trump called for Republicans and Democrats to work together to strengthen background checks for prospective gun buyers and pass new immigration laws. However, following criticism from the National Rifle Association, Trump made a subsequent statement. Reading from a teleprompter, he didn't mention gun control at all and made no acknowledgement that his own anti-immigrant rhetoric has fueled these incidents. Trump instead blamed violent video games and the fake news media for the killings. Trump half-heartedly condemned racism, bigotry, and white supremacy as he parroted Republican talking points about the perils of mental illness, violence in the media, and violent video games. Trump failed to acknowledge his repeated use of the word invasion to describe asylum seekers and immigrants at our southern border. Trump also cited the threat of racist hate with no acknowledgement that his own anti-immigrant rhetoric has fueled that fire. Trump also incorrectly referred to Toledo, Ohio instead of Dayton, Ohio as the location of one of these killings. Trump's own re-election campaign has characterized immigration as an invasion in more than 2,000 Facebook ads this year, the exact language the El Paso, Texas shooter used. Top Democrats called the statement, quote, something out of 1930s Germany. Trump then tweeted the news media is contributing, quote, greatly to the anger and rage that has been built up over many years. One Republican lawmaker broke ranks and accused Trump and the Republican Party of enabling white supremacy. Nebraska's John McAllister said the Republican Party is complicit to an obvious racist and immoral activity inside our party. We have a Republican president who continually stokes racist fears. He calls certain countries assholes, tells women of color to go back to where they came from and lies more than he tells the truth. Global markets tumbled in their worst day in a decade as China began manipulating its currency in response to Trump's trade war. The People's Bank of China allowed its currency to weaken past seven renminbi to the American dollar for the first time in more than a decade. In an unusually blunt statement, the bank blamed the currency fall on Trump's trade wars and tariffs. In response, the Treasury Department designated China as a currency manipulator. That is a move that no White House has exercised since the Clinton administration. Day 929, August 6th. Trump attacked former President Obama after Obama called on Americans to soundly reject language coming out of the mouths of any of our leaders that feeds a climate of fear and hatred or normalizes racist sentiments. Trump, after watching a Fox News segment that criticized Obama and implied the former president had attacked Trump, said, quote, Did George Bush ever condemn Obama after Sandy Hook? President Obama had 32 mass shootings during his reign. Not many people said Obama is out of control. Trump then said he is the least racist person in the world. Obama did not mention Trump once in his statement. Trump's campaign continues to run Facebook ads attacking Hispanic immigrants. Trump has spent $5.6 million on the ads that read, quote, we have an invasion in all caps. It's critical that we stop the invasion. Trump is also running a campaign targeting black voters in an effort to keep them from going to the polls at all. The FBI opened a domestic terrorism investigation into the Gilroy Garlic Festival shooting in California that left three people dead after discovering the gunman had a list of other potential targets. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell complained that protesters outside his home were making serious calls to violence. McConnell claimed a group of 20 to 30 people were an angry left-wing mob that were making threats and shouting profanities. Louisville Metro Police, however, said the group outside McConnell's residence were protesting peacefully. They were picketing McConnell over his refusal to allow the Senate to consider bills passed by the House to strengthen background checks for gun sales. On the same day, McConnell's campaign tweeted a photo of tombstones emblazoned with the name of his political opponents. In a photo subtitled The Grim Reaper of Socialism, five tombstones are flanked by two Team Mitch signs. One of the tombstones reads R.I.P. Amy McGrath, November 3rd, 2020. McGrath is running against him in the Kentucky Senate race. Other tombstones include Judge Merrick Garland, the Green New Deal Socialism, and the 2014 challenger who McConnell defeated. 
Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez confronted McConnell about a photo of seven high school men in Team Mitch shirts that were groping and choking a cardboard cutout of her. Ocasio-Cortez asked McConnell to clarify if he was, quote, paying for young men to practice groping and choking members of Congress with your payroll, or is this just the standard culture of Team Mitch? McConnell's campaign responded by attacking the far left and the media for writing about the incident in the first place and using the image to demonize, stereotype, and publicly castigate every young person who dares to get involved with Republican politics. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot ripped into Ivanka Trump after the latter tried to deflect criticism over the two mass shootings by criticizing Chicago. Ivanka had tweeted, quote, As we grieve over the evil mass shootings, let us not overlook that Chicago experienced its deadliest weekend of the year. A livid Lightfoot said Trump got key facts wrong and falsely implied that the injuries happened in one incident. If Trump actually cared, added Lightfoot, she should have reached out to her. Quote, I'm not going to be distracted by nonsense tweets from people who don't know what they're talking about. Day 930, August 7th. Trump claimed the critics who say his language about immigrants is inspiring violence or, quote, just trying to score political points and his rhetoric brings people together. This came just an hour after Trump had told critic Beto O'Rourke, an El Paso native, to, quote, be quiet. Quote, Beto, parentheses, phony name to indicate Hispanic heritage, O'Rourke, who was embarrassed by my last visit to the great state of Texas where I trounced him and is now even more embarrassed by pulling at 1% the Democrat primary should respect the victims and law enforcement and be quiet. El Paso has asked Trump not to visit with lawmakers saying he is not welcome. The number of Mexicans refused immigrant visas to the United States because they might become dependent on government benefits has skyrocketed under Trump. The State Department denied nearly 6,000 immigrant visa applications for Mexican nationals on the grounds the applicants were so poor or infirm they risked becoming a public charge. That's up from just seven denials for Mexican applicants in 2016, the last full year under former President Barack Obama. Trump's campaign put out a video that included two signs promoting the QAnon conspiracy theory. The signs appear in close-up shots of a Women for Trump video published online. Trump rallies have become prominent gathering spots for many of the QAnon conspiracy theorists. YouTube removed the video after being alerted to the QAnon content. Day 931, August 8th. The aftermath of two mass killings in the United States continues to reverberate. Trump was greeted in Dayton, Ohio and El Paso, Texas by large protests. In Republican-leading Dayton, demonstrators waved signs that read, Dump Trump and Do Something, while Vice President Joe Biden accused Trump of fanning the flames of racial hatred. In El Paso, days-long demonstrations led to large, angry chants against Trump. Trump responded by lashing out at the protesters and blaming the media. Trump also quoted unverified conservative news reporting that the Dayton, Ohio shooter had a history of supporting political figures like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Antifa. And after visiting Dayton, Trump attacked their mayor, Nan Whaley, calling her a supporter of Bernie Sanders and of Antifa, and that she, quote, totally misrepresented what took place inside of the hospital during his visit. Whaley said she told Trump during his visit that Dayton is, quote, really looking forward to some action on gun control. Trump was also reported to have exploded in fury at Air Force One at the protests, asking aides, quote, who was out there defending him. The Trump administration has quietly eased more than half a dozen restrictions that expanded access to guns by lifting some bans and limiting the names of people on a national database used to keep guns away from dangerous people. Trump falsely claimed his administration has done, quote, much more than most to curb mass shootings in the United States. U.S. immigration officials have arrested almost 700 people after a series of raids in the state of Mississippi. The ICE raids targeted workers at seven agricultural processing plants who allegedly did not have proper documentation. Some children were taken to a local gym after they came home to find their parents gone. 
the House Judiciary Committee sued to force former White House counsel Donald McGahn to testify. The Judiciary Committee claimed that McGahn is, quote, the most important witness other than the president in their case. They asked a federal judge to strike down the administration's claim that McGahn and other aides are, quote, absolutely immune from committee subpoenas. The FBI warned that the fringe conspiracy theory is a new domestic terrorist threat. The document specifically mentioned QAnon, a network that believes in a deep state conspiracy against Trump, and Pizzagate, the theory that a pedophile ring involving the Clintons was being run out of the basement of a Washington, D.C. pizza restaurant. That restaurant, incidentally, does not have a basement. A U.S. State Department official oversaw a Washington, D.C. area chapter of a white nationalist organization. Matthew Gabert, who is a foreign affairs officer in the Bureau of Energy Resources, hosted white nationalists at his home and published white nationalist propaganda online. Also, Tucker Carlson claimed that white supremacy is a hoax, just like the Russia hoax. The Fox News host called white supremacy a conspiracy theory used to divide the country and keep a hold on power. Finally, in a bizarre story, Trump said he's considering commuting the sentence of former Illinois Governor Rob Blagojevich. Trump told reporters he thought the former governor was treated, quote, unbelievably unfairly by a gang of sleazebags. Blagojevich is serving a 14-year sentence for attempting to sell President Obama's former Senate seat. His wife has claimed he is the victim of a witch hunt. Day 932, August 9th. Trump has refused urgent requests by the Department of Homeland Security to make combating domestic terror a great priority. FBI Director Christopher Wray has testified that there have been as many domestic terror arrests in the last nine months, almost 100, as there have been arrests connected to international terror. Wray also noticed that many of the domestic terrorism cases are motivated by white supremacy. Despite this, Trump refused to shift resources and claims that radical Islamists are the nation's gravest threat. Anna McCabe, the former FBI deputy director fired a day before he was retired, has sued the FBI, alleging his dismissal was retaliatory. McCabe named Trump in the suit, saying he purposely and intentionally pushed the Justice Department to demote and terminate him as part of an unconstitutional plan to discredit and remove Justice Department and FBI employees who were deemed to be his partisan opponents. Twitter suspended Mitch McConnell's account after the campaign tweeted a profanity-laced video of protesters outside his home. Twitter said Team Mitch was temporarily locked out for a tweet that violated our violent threats policy, specifically threats involving physical safety. McConnell's campaign called Twitter's action, quote, a problem with the speech police in America today, and that Twitter will allow the words of Masker Mitch to trend nationally on their platform, but locks her account for posting actual threats against us. In a related story, Trump is preparing an executive order to address alleged anti-conservative bias by social media companies. A number of major banks turned over documents related to Russians who may have had dealings with Trump, his family, or the Trump Organization. Deutsche Bank also turned over emails, loan agreements, and other documents related to the Trump Organization to the office of the New York Attorney General. 300 people detained in a shock and all ice raid in Mississippi have been released, but it remains unclear what has happened to the other 280 adults or the children who were separated from their parents. State officials say they do not have a clear picture of what happened to those children or who took custody of them. In a related story, ICE agents were spotted in the Pilsen neighborhood of Chicago. McConnell promised that expanding background checks for all gun purchasers would be front and center in the coming Senate debate on how to respond to gun violence. McConnell has previously said he will not support any gun control legislation without widespread Republican backing. The NRA warned McConnell and Trump against endorsing extensive background checks for gun sales. Nine in ten Americans support background checks for all gun purchases, including eight in ten Republicans. The mayors of 214 cities signed an open letter urging the Senate to pass legislation to strengthen background checks. Trump's approval ratings continue to slump at 42%. These are the Trump Diaries.
Melanie Adcock chatted with John Shane and Angelique Fomin about the Icebox Derby program. ComEd has been piloting a STEM program for high school-aged girls in which they take a refrigerator and then transform it into a small race car based on solar energy. Taxi in Chicago with Melanie Adcock airs every Friday at 1. Um, ComEd has some well-known programs for tech that we're excited to talk about, the, the Icebox Derby. But, but first, uh, let's tell our listeners a bit about you. Uh, John, let's have you start. Uh, sure. Uh, well, I've been at ComEd for just over seven years, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the Icebox Derby is one of the uh, outreach programs I work on, uh, mm-hmm. along with a couple of my colleagues. And uh, I am a communications person in general. So, but uh, Icebox Derby is certainly one of my favorite parts of my job. Yeah, and, and Angelique. Um, yeah, like you said, I'm a junior in high school at Lincoln Park. Um, right now, I'm a music major, so I take a lot of music classes. I do extracurriculars. I have like other jobs and all that. So I'm kind of just spending my summer so far, um, you know, doing a bunch of things and different jobs, especially with Comet. Neat. Well, and uh, and now you can add um, a race car driver to your list of things. Yeah. <laughs> oh, how exciting. Um, and so now um, about ComEd. Uh, for, for those who don't know ComEd, uh, uh, John, can you give us an introduction to your company? And for the, the many who do know ComEd, uh, can you also tell us something about the company's commitment to STEM and outreach that we may not have known? Uh, absolutely. So ComEd is the... Uh, energy provider for roughly the northern third of the state of Illinois. Uh, We deliver energy to over 4 million customers, uh, both residential and business customers uh, in our territory. Um, And, you know, programs like uh, Icebox Derby, we're really uh, focused on bringing opportunity to uh, areas that we feel are underserved. We feel women are underrepresented in STEM careers. Uh, Mm -hmm. Same with uh, several different underserved communities. So we bring Icebox Derby and other outreach programs like that in order to uh, inspire uh, and attract folks to the uh, workforce to, you know, really think about STEM as a career path. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we we start these programs because one of the big things we feel is necessary is exposure. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. we... Uh, these kinds of hands-on activities are unique. Um, mm-hmm. The schools do a great job of teaching kids, you know, math, and they're starting to get more into engineering. But I think the opportunity to have exposure to people who already have STEM careers and to have these hands-on activities really starts to maybe, uh, you know, uh, fan the flames, mm-hmm. as it were, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe get people to think about what their opportunities are and what their options are uh, as they move on in life. So we're really excited to be able to do these programs and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, bring a, a new generation to the uh, to the STEM workforce. Yeah, um, and that's uh, these are great goals, and um, and it, and it's good for people in Chicago to to understand that uh, that our uh, companies who are here do have this kind of commitment to building our, our technology community. Uh, and, and everyone who participates in STEM or tech is part of our technology community, not just the people working in the industry, but we have Angelique here who is a junior in high school. She's part of our technology community too. And we're very glad that you are here as well 
as all of your teammates who've participated in this. Um, and so the, the participants in ComEd's upcoming Icebox Derby are transforming old refrigerators into solar-enhanced race cars. And there's a te- six teams of uh, girls who work with ComEd mentors to assemble and then race the cars. Um, so this is, this is, is quite a unique um, uh, program. Uh, John, can you tell us how it got started and, and how long it's been going on? Sure. Uh, well, we, this year is our uh, sixth Icebox Derby. And uh, the program started, well, we started looking around and, um, you know, women in general are highly underrepresented in STEM fields. Uh, they hold about 26% of jobs in STEM fields, uh, even though they're more than 50% of the population. And, you know, we looked around, we worked with, um, you know, our own internal folks. We had some outside agencies that we worked at to really get a, a view of what's going on. And, and as I said, we think that a lot of the problem or, or some of the, the issue is exposure. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the girls we talk to who go through this program tell us, you know, I really like I like math. I like science. I like technology. But I don't see it. I don't see a lot of other women that are involved in it. Um, you know, there's a robotics club. I'm the only girl in that club. And, you know, I think that uh, it, it they tend to maybe shy away a little bit from pursuing that as a career. And so we took an opportunity to put together a program where uh, it's hands-on activity, it's it's meeting and speaking with and learning from uh, female engineers, um, but also to meet young women like themselves to see that they're not alone out there, that mm-hmm. there are other people that are interested and they form relationships. I'm really excited every year when uh, we talk to girls who have gone through the program that continue to stay in touch with girls that were on their team mm-hmm. or on the program in general, because I think that that level of conversation and and continuing to talk about things they're doing in school and what their interests are, I think that helps to, you know, build some excitement and help them think about, you know, when I go to college or, you know, even in high school, what are things I could be doing that maybe I wouldn't have done before? Mm-hmm. And so we, mm-hmm. we hope that Icebox Derby is sort of an entryway to look at STEM as a, as a career option. Uh, and that's really what we're trying to do with this. And that is neat. Well, and Angelique, can you tell us a, a bit about your team and and uh, and what what you've been doing for for this uh, for this year's derby? Yeah. Um, so my team consists of four other girls, mm-hmm. including my mentors. Um, about seven. Then, mm-hmm. um, can I say their names? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's Sarah, Shristi, Amari. Umi and my mentor Alyssa and then the adults are um Brittany and Angela Mm -hmm. and so hello ladies I hope you're all listening to the show today (laughs) (laughs) um so uh during this process we like built our car and um it was kind of a different thing uh multiple different things you know we had to wire things we had to screw things on we had to Mm -hmm. put solar panels on we had to um kind of in a way not really cold because it was pre-coded for us but like mm-hmm. you had to um build it so that it, it's kind of weird but you had to code it in a way mm-hmm. and um yeah it's just it it worked I it, mm-hmm. it did work <laughs> but um I don't know it's just my team we got it done pretty quickly you know it was it was a lot of teamwork and we had like a goal so I feel like that kind of made it easier <laughs> All right, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but we were discussing something earlier 
that um, you seemed quite passionate about, and and I had other plans for the the, the introduction little segment that we normally do. Yes, but, <clears throat> but um, I wanted to turn it over to you because this is a subject you are clearly um, quite passionate about, and that is the the hit country rap song sensation um old town road uh yeah it's it's tragic honestly oh well okay so yeah why don't you go go ahead and explain what you mean by that um well we hear it all the time on the radio um old town road we understand it on a deep level we understand the symbolism we understand the um the 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 feeling the emotion conveyed but one thing that I can't say that many of us understand. Um, and that's what a horse is. I mean... And I've been searching myself spiritually for what a horse could possibly be, but I... It's something that we got, I gotta do more more research on. Well, I feel like I've encountered a horse on occasion. Have you? Um, yeah. In Florida? Uh, yeah, they don't last very long no. in the swamps. <clears throat> so it's kind of like a, um, you would rent one at a fancy party, perhaps. Um, really? To sort of parade around. I yeah. didn't, I, DF, I <clears throat> wouldn't have, uh, pinned you as somebody that attends fancy parties. I have been, employed at various fancy parties oh um in a oh this is this is during your rodeo clown days it's not i I, sorry rodeo clown years it's not really rodeo clowning i prefer to think of it as commedia del arte um in the rodeo environment um in the sphero rodeo regardless um i i mean i looked back through all of my books and I realized, uh, like all the books that I'd read since childhood, and I, I was reading advanced books at an early age. Doctor, I mean, I read my first Doctor Seuss was age one, I think, hmm. um, and I think I read The Odyssey when I was twelve. But but it, but like the thing is, you look through all these books, and you, some of them have pictures, like the early childhood books. Um, whenever I and I, you know, cross referenced horse, I'm just getting different accounts. <laughs> like these are entirely different pictures. <laughs> Clearly, they're different animals. I think that society has lost the idea of what a horse is, and I think this is why we connect to this to the song so much. Well, specifically children too, sure. Because um, older people have undoubtedly, um, you know, the people from the Wild West—they're still around. They're quite old, they're, yes. but there's still a few of them around, sure. and they it's presumably that, it's that good old dry desert air. Are we cool yet? 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 The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shannon Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.